Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins, one of your pastors. It's a gift to be with you as we continue in our series in the book of Isaiah. I want to start this morning by taking you with me on a journey in an internet rabbit trail that I was on this week. For some reason, I got looking up cases, the most ridiculous court cases in American history. And believe me, there are some doozies, right? The one, a few of them stood out. One was a man in Austin, Texas, 37 years old, sued his date at the Gardens of uh, the, what is it, the Guardians of the Galaxy movie because she was on her phone the whole time and it ruined the movie for him. <laughs> they settled out of court, $17.31. A, a kidnapper by the name of Jesse Dimmick sued the people he kidnapped because he fell asleep, they escaped, and he said that they had a binding verbal agreement that they would help him get away from the police. And here's the craziest one. Robert Lee Brock sued himself for $5 million after he was put in jail for robbing someone's house because he violated his own religious convictions for $5 million. And then he said, because I'm the ward of the state, the state should have to pay for that. But all of those are ridiculous. But none of them are as ridiculous as the court scene that we are going to see today in Isaiah 41, where there's a trial, a trial to determine if the God who created everything is worthy of your worship or a stack of rocks. Go ahead and jump into Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, verse 1, it says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. The passage starts by creating this imaginary court scene where God is calling the nations together and calling his people together to gather around and to have a debate, to have a court case, to settle an issue and it's the issue of whether the Babylonian gods are worthy of worship or Yahweh, the true God. This seems ridiculous. And the passage is intended to show the ridiculousness of it. But it's an important question for the people of that time because God's people had been carried off into exile, taken from their home, taken from their homeland, and taken by another nation and lived as second-class citizens. And they were probably wondering, is our God powerful? Is he worthy of worship? Or should we just give ourselves over to these Babylonian gods because apparently it seems like they're pretty strong? Who is worthy of worship? The Babylonian idols or God? Now, when it comes to idols... It's, it's interesting. Who are these Babylonian gods? Well, all idols are where you take some good thing in creation and you elevate it to a place 
of being an ultimate thing. This could be work or family or health or money. It's all good things, but when it becomes the central thing in your life, we treat it as God, we, repla- we try to replace God with that thing, and we give it our full devotion and worship. We make it the center of our life. We do it now, the Babylonians did it then. But they do it in a different way. See, the way that their religion worked is they had these, these ideas, these things that they would worship, like a good harvest or a healthy family. And it would be the source of their life, but it would be embodied in this carved image, this, this like statue. And when you looked at the statue, it would represent this, this God, this deity that was supposed to give you a good harvest or wealth or wisdom. Babylonian gods, they had a bunch of them. There was Shamash, the god of justice, Nabu, the god of wisdom, Bel or Marduk, the god of order and destiny. All the things that they represent are good, wisdom, order. But as the center of their life, as the object of their worship, they became deities that demanded devotion. In verses two through four in this cosmic court case, we see God make his opening statement. He talks about his mighty work through history. And then if you look in the past, the present, in the future, God has been with all generations saying, I, the Lord, with them, with the first of them, and with the last, I am he. It's a clunky statement, but it's intentionally clunky because it has so much rich uh, wording that is intended to bring things to mind. That God was there in the beginning as the creator of all things. That he was there in the exodus to deliver his people. He was there when kings were raised up and brought down, and he will be there in the end. Every generation, God is present and at work. And all of history bears witness to the fact that he is worthy of worship. How do the people respond? How do the idols respond? Well, they're terrified. In verse 5 and 7, there's this panic and, and they call the craftsmen, the goldsmith, the metal workers, the carpenters to build better gods. They're like, oh, we are up against a supreme God. We need to upgrade here. So they're using the best of their craft and ability, their metal workers, and it says that they nail the gods to the ground so that it cannot be moved. It's absurd. Like the God who created the universe. They're like nailing their idols to the ground and be like, this should do it. He's not going to be able to knock this one over. The scene portrays the ridiculousness of worshiping a lump of stone, something made by human hands. The absurdity of worshiping something that isn't just human, it's less than human. And the importance of worshiping God instead. Now, what about us? We have idols in our day. You might be saying, Yeah, we have some things that we emphasize, but we're not like ridiculous like they were. We don't have like these carved images that we devote our life to. But do we? If you were to take a time machine and take someone from Babylon to this very moment now, and they were to look around and say, where are the carved images? Where are the craftsmen? devoting 
their craft to paint this beautiful statue that represents the object of their worship, where would they see it? They would see it in here. It's us. They would see that we spend more time crafting ourselves, our sense of self, our sense of significance than the Babylonian craftsmen ever spent on their statues. Crafting our aesthetic as Americans spend 150 million hours each day getting ready as we paint our faces and sculpt our hair with more precision than a Babylonian goldsmith. We're crafting a career as a blacksmith painstakingly solders new features onto an idol, we do the same thing with our resumes. Or crafting an online persona as the average teenager has more PR tools and more of a PR presence than most businesses throughout the history of the world. We craft our physique, our interests and our hobbies. And behind the carved image, you always see the big idea that people are worshiping, what would they conclude? They would conclude that we are a people who worship the idol of significance. That we are a people who devote our life to crafting a sense of self that is meaningful, that is important, that is unique, and it matters and it needs to be admired by others. This isn't something we thought of. There are profound cultural pressures. Just like the Israelites were living in Babylon faced the cultural pressure to bow down to the idol of significance, we hear these messages that tell us to bow down to a way of life that is focused and centered on building a significant self. It comes in different forms. There's significant work. This is the one I really struggle with. We hear the message that says you must find the most meaningful and satisfying work. And when you do, that's when you know you matter. Or a personality. You craft a personality, a sense of humor, intelligence, creativity, so that you could be admired by others and then know that you matter. You find the significant spouse, that person who makes your life feel like a rom-com and looks at you in a way that says, you matter. Some of us want to have a big impact in the world. We want to change the world, and when we change the world in some way, that's when we know that we will matter. Some of us have given up on those quests because it's hard. And there are still cultural messages that say, if you've given up, we have video games where you can pretend like you are a hero, and pornography to pretend like you are desired, and pretend like you matter. This message is brutal. And it is the idol of our day, the idol of significance. It is brutal and it is putting an unbearable weight on so many people in this room right now. And it's put an unbearable weight on me in many points in my life. 13 years ago, I remember sitting in my backyard seriously asking the question of do I follow and bow down 
to the idol of significance or serve my family. We assume that this is just some innocent little fun ambition, like ambition, like follow your dreams, all this messaging. But if we push down, we realize that this can be as oppressive as the Babylonian idols and that it needs to be scrutinized and it needs to be put on trial. And today in this passage, we're going to see God putting on the stand the Babylonian idols and arguing for why they are unworthy of your worship. And of the many idols that we could focus on today, I'm going to focus on the idol of significance, and we're going to put that one on trial as well, knowing that the same evidence against the Babylonian gods is the evidence against the God that we struggle with as well. So go ahead, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 41, starting with verse 21. We see this is a moment when God is cross-examining the idols and bringing evidence against them. He says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are. Tell us that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare the things to come. In other words, he's saying, look into the past. Can you tell us what happened? Look into the future. Can you tell the future, you Babylonian idols? Then it says, tell us what is to come hereafter. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God is cross-examining the idols, not just bringing accusations, but bringing evidence. And the evidence is the past, the present, and the future. All of history to bear witness that they are unworthy of your worship. And God is worthy. So let's look at Exhibit A. Exhibit A, the evidence that God brings against the idols, and that is the past. He's bringing forth a set of evidence, looking at the past, looking at history, to see if the idols are worthy. Do they have a track record that holds up? In verse 22, it says, Tell us the former things. Tell us what they are that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. In a lot of law movies, I don't know if this is what really happens, in the court, but in law movies, they always ask that question of, where were you on the night of blank? To either exonerate or to try to convict someone. That where were you question is significant, and that is the question that is being brought up here. Where were you in these significant points in history? Were you, were you there in the beginning? When I said, let there be light and created everything that exists, including the stones and the trees that you were made out of? Were you there in the Exodus when I split open the sea and I rescued my people? Were you there at the rise and the fall of kings? Were you there generation after generation? If so, talk to us. Tell us what happened back then. Give us some commentary if you were around. And they say nothing because they're a lump of rocks. They're nothing more than a glorified Elmo doll. When you look in the past, the Babylonian gods were not there in the generations and in the important moments when God was there. And it proves that they are unworthy of worship. 
and that God is. But what about our idols, especially the idol of significance? When we bring the evidence of the past, when we ask the past to come and to take a stand and testify about whether significance is worthy of our devotion, what do they say? Open up the history books. I have more examples than I could ever know what to do with here of people throughout history who reached the pinnacle of what society said is significant. And their message in the end is it was not enough. Statesmen like Alexander Hamilton, inventors like Tesla, culinary experts like Anthony Bourdain, they say it's not enough. I'd be remiss if on Super Bowl Sunday, I didn't quote Tom Brady, whom I will finally admit is the GOAT. I'm not happy about it, but neither is he. Three, after he won his first three Super Bowl rings, there was an interview where he got honest and was talking about how the Super Bowl rings, this, all the things that he had devoted himself to when he achieved it, it didn't deliver what he thought. And he said this phrase was just this moment of just real honesty. God, it's got to be more than this. And his use of God in that sentence, I think, is just an expression. But it's ironic because it feels almost like an accidental prayer where he's speaking to his idol and saying, you are not enough. History bears witness when it comes to the stand and says time and time again, Tonight, when you watch the Super Bowl, I want to challenge you to do something. My favorite moment is when they, the celebration at the end, of you see just the relief of people experiencing the, this, the relief of having achieved what they set out to do. But some people have linked their identity so much to that, that in that moment, you will start to see a fake smile turn on. And if you look in their eyes, you will see fear. Because it's a fear of having reached the top and realizing it was not worthy of your entire devotion. I recognize that fear in someone's eyes because it's the fear that I've had when I've worshiped the idol of significance. But we're not done. Look at the past, your past. It bears witness against the idol of significance. Some of us, myself included, put a lot of bank in your resume and you say, once I get that job, once I get that degree, then I'm going to have a meaningful life. But that was three jobs ago. And now those are just words on a piece of paper as you are off chasing the next thing that you think will deliver. Parenting. Some of us have said, if I can just be a parent, then I'm doing something important. But you've started to compare your kids with others and are demanding things of them to build your sense of significance. And it'll never be enough. Zillow. Some of us once got on Zillow and said, I'm going to go find a meaningful place to live. 
a place that will finally be enough, and you've already started looking at a new place on Zillow, and no matter how much square footage you get, it will not be able to contain your future disappointment if you are trying to find your significance in that. If you're honest, your history says devotion to the idol of significance is not worthy of worship. Now, I know some of you are probably like, dude, that's bleak. You are like seriously bumming me out right now. And by the way, I thought you guys were the ones who said that all of life is all for Jesus. Am I just supposed to like not care about where I live or where I work? No, absolutely. These are important things. They are gifts from God. But they're just not enough to deliver your sense of significance. They're not enough to be the centerpiece of your life. And here's why. A desire for significance is good. But significance doesn't come from something you can earn. You can never earn enough to feel significant enough, but real significance was earned for you. Real significance comes from God. It is, it is given. It is a gift. It comes from being known and loved and cared for by him and him looking over your life and saying, you are mine. One of the things I love about this passage is the language that is used that just gushes, where God gushes over his people. And as he gives them their identity, he gives them their significance. Verse 8 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For the people living in Babylon in that time, it would have, those words would have come with a great sense of relief. And they should come with a great sense of relief to you as well as you just hear the language that God speaks over his people. And you are his people. That you were chosen. God says, you're my friend. I've gone to the ends of the earth for you. I want to be with you. I want to help you. What could be more significant than the king and the creator of everything? The one who created all the stuff that we find ourselves trying to find significance in. And he says, all of that is mine, but what's more important is you are mine. You are my child. I love you. And if you need more evidence, looking back into history, look to the cross and the lengths at which God went after you to say, I love you. You are mine. Your significance comes in being my child. And no matter what happens with your resume or where you end up on Zillow, that can't change. Real significance not, does not come from the admiration of others but it comes from the affection of God. And that is where the evidence points that he is worthy of our worship, not the idols. Next, we move to exhibit B, 
the future. When we look into the future, we see that God is worthy of our worship, not the idols. Verse 23, God comes with another uh, question. It says, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. In other words, look, Babylonian idols, if you're really God's, predict something in the future. Tell us what's going to happen next. And, and, and they can't. They can't predict who's going to win the Super Bowl tonight. They're, they can't predict the outcome of a coin toss. They can't even be wrong because they're just a lump of rocks. They say nothing. But God has a rich vision for our future. And this beautiful picture is painted in verse 17 through 20. It's a picture of God growing a forest in the middle of the desert to paint the picture of what he has for his people. Those whom he has called significant, where he is taking them in the future. It says, when the poor and needy need water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. He's given this image of of wandering people in the desert who just desperately need water. And that's who Israel is at that time, and they're tempted to drink from the wells of Babylonian idols, but God says, I have a better drink for you. I am going to provide for you. And what does that look like? Verse 18, I will open up rivers on the bare heights and the the fountains in the midst of the valleys. And I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. It's giving this picture of, of letting water, rivers, explode out of the cracked ground. And all of a sudden, this refreshing water is around that is healing and restoring the, the weary wanderer. And then all of a sudden in verse 19, it talks about all these trees that are popping up. The cedar, the myrtle, the pine. Trees that typically don't grow together or grow in the desert. But because of God's lush provision of their future, it's this forest that bursts up in the middle of the desert. And it's painting a picture of when he is going to take them out of exile and restore to them this future of flourishing. And the deeper meaning, looking at it from this angle, is it's also a picture of when he rescues this broken humanity from the exile of sin, Satan, and death, makes everything right, restores injustices, deals completely with sin, wipes tears away from our eyes, and secures for us a secure and significant future where we flourish with the king. When you compare the idols and their inability to speak and even predict one thing and God's vision for the future, you see that God is worthy of our worship and not the idols. But what about the idol of significance? I know that some of us, when I was talking about how the pursuit and devotion to significance is not worthy of your life, it doesn't deliver. Some of you, if you're honest, you're like, 
Well, it kind of it is right now. Like, I kind of do feel important, and it feels good, and I'm getting a lot of accolades. But here's where the future comes in. The future bears witness that those things won't last. That there is a degree of decay that all of the things that you try to find significance in in this world will eventually fade. Some of you are banking on your cognitive ability, how smart you are, or your personality. But as we grow older, that will even fade. Two of the smartest professors I've ever known who poured into my life currently have trouble putting together sentences. One because of old age, one because of a brain injury. But our cognitive abilities are fickle, and if you're banking on that, there could be a day when the people who sought your advice will then struggle to listen to a sentence you have to say. It's not enough. Some are seeking our significance in how we look. I'm not doing that, but some of you guys are doing that. <laughs> but here's the thing. We all get older. <laughs> There's not enough yoga and burpees and green tea in the world to stop what's coming for you. And the people who used to gawk at you will look right past you. And if you found your significance in that, it won't be enough. Work. Some of you feel pretty important right now with your promotions and awards and job titles, but they will be forgotten. Let me just do a little experiment here. Real quick, who knows who Justin Anderson is? Okay, who thought I was referring to a professional athlete? All right, who's Justin Anderson? He's the pastor who founded this church. And there's like 20 people in here who know who he is. An incredible preacher who did significant work. And he used to joke about how it'll just be a few years and then you guys will forget me. We're like, no, we won't. It turns out we did, right? <laughs> the church you're a part of. And like 10 people know his name. What does that say for the rest of us? You're like, dude, I don't even know who you are up there and you're currently here. <laughs> We're all going to be forgotten. It's a matter of time, just 10, 15 years after we die, and our trophies and awards are just filling up the shelves on goodwill. If you need to build your significance on one of these things, it's not going to hold up. Over time, there's the attrition that proves it's insufficient to satisfy and unworthy of your worship. But the future that we just talked about is already set. You have a significant future. And if you have a significant future and you don't need to clamor for it now, then that frees you up to live into Jesus's definition of significance, of greatness. He says, whoever wants to become great must become a servant following his pattern as the great king who's lord over everything, who chose to express his greatness through washing feet and serving. This won't expire. Your cognitive abilities, your trophies, they will. 
But no matter where you are in life and what you are going through, you can always find a way to serve. One of my favorite sermons from Martin Luther King Jr. is called The Drum Major Instinct. And he talks about how we all have this desire to be great, and that's not wrong as long as it's reoriented to Jesus' definition of greatness, and that greatness is to serve, because that's what lasts. He says, everybody can be great, because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. You can always serve. And here's the thing about service. Your trophies, they fade. But to serve and to love another echoes throughout eternity and comes with us. This doesn't say that we don't care about possessions or health or career, but it just reorients the question that we ask. I had a friend who was kind of obsessed with possessions. He really liked cars, and he kind of was choosing cars that would make people look at him and say, wow. So he decided to undercut that that he was going to push into Jesus' definition of greatness. And he bought a truck, a kind of beat-up truck. And he said, I'm going to use this to go and help people move every Saturday morning and serve them. Let me tell you, there was more joy from getting that truck than the fancy car he was going to get. The joy would have waned before he even got home from the dealership But as he drives around with Jesus in his beat-up truck, helping people move, that stuff reverberates through history. Health. Instead of trying to be healthy in order to be seen and admired, I've had a friend who always used to pray that the nutrients that he's eating in that meal would fuel the service of others the next day. Or career. Instead of saying, which degree or which career or which promotion should I get to make me feel better about myself? Asking those same questions, which degree, which career, but what allows me to serve? One of my, the things that encourages me the most is uh, Dominic Mendoza, who, um, you know, I just really admire. If you're around him for like five seconds, you know, this guy's smart. He's smarter than you. He's smarter than me. He's a smart guy. Any company would be glad to have him. He put in hard work in law school. And and as he's deciding which of the the various paths he's going to take, his question wasn't which one carries the most prestige, but which one allows me to serve. And for him and his particular set of gifts, this isn't true for everybody, but for him, his particular set of gifts It was going and being a public defender and working with those who were struggling and suffering and didn't have money and trying to sit with them in the the midst of brokenness. His work is important. Don't disregard it. Just the question changes. What does it look like to serve? If you devote your life to significance, you will find a false god with no future. 
If you devote your life to God, you will find real significance in a future that is secured by him. When we look into the future and it bears witness, it declares to you that the false gods, including the God of significance, is unworthy of your worship. And finally, exhibit C, the present. I don't know why Isaiah doesn't talk about history in this chronological sense. He goes past, future, then present. But it does feel like he's kind of narrowing in to show the ineffectiveness of the idols, the Babylonian idols. Verse 23, he says, Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. In other words, he's saying, do something. Do you work? Like, who cares about the past and the future? Maybe you can't handle that. Can you just do something? Do a trick. Terrify us. Spook us. Do something good or bad. Do something. And the lump of rocks does nothing. In that present moment, it was insufficient and unable to do a single thing. Consider the the foolishness. Sorry about that. Um, Consider the foolishness of the idols in this situation. Verse 7, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and they smooth it with, and they strike the anvil and they say of the smoldering, it is good. If we're honest, what we see here is that the gods who are supposed to work for us and deliver us significance and health and safety and security, they don't deliver, they don't work for us, but we work for them. The absurdity of this passage is that the only ones who are actually good at things are these craft makers, these goldsmiths and and, and metal workers who are wasting their time and their energy and their skill and their financial resources. There's gold here on something that can do nothing for them. They have found themselves working for that idol. And the same is true for us. When we give ourselves to idols, we find that they are taking things from us. They are not working for us, but they are enslaving us and making us work for them. We think we're gaining the praise of colleagues, but we're losing friends and family as they take away your time. You think you're gaining productivity, but they're taking away your sleep and your peace. You think that you've crafted this personality that gets you admired by others, but it's creating barriers and taking away your opportunity to really be known. All idols claim to be working for you, but they are actually taking from you. Here's why this is significant for me. This is a big, big part of my story. And it goes back a long time. My great-great-grandpa was a Dutch guy who was kind of well off, but he was bored and he wanted to live a significant life, so he decided to become a homesteader in the US. And in the pursuit of that dream, he ends up wrecking his family. My great-grandpa, You're not going to believe this, 
but he was the inventor of dog food and got into a business deal. At least this is what the family tells me. That's so <laughs> just passing it along. Uh, was so obsessed with his inventions and his, his desire to be known for doing something, to be significant, that when he was cut out of the deal with Purina, it broke him. And over some dog food, he ended up taking his own life, devastating his family, with my grandma finding him. My grandma, this craving and hunger for significance hit her as she left her teenage daughters to go be a biologist in Africa, following and obeying this idol of security. When I was a kid, when I was three, my mom had me as a teenager and she disappeared. And we didn't know where she was for a lot of years. And... Uh, she did it because she wanted to live the significant life that every young 20-year-old needs to have. And I don't hold my mom or my grandma or any of those folks with any sort of contempt. My heart breaks for them. Because it almost happened to me too. In my early 20s, I was obsessed with doing something important in life. And I thought I was immune, that I wasn't going to be like the rest of my family, but I did the same thing with ministry that they did with the other areas of life. I thought if I'm going to be significant, I had a few categories. One would be a missionary. That's when I know I'm really important. Or to be a basketball scout. Or to start a nonprofit. By the age of 26, I had done all three of those things. I was a basketball scout, not a good one, but I was one, that was pretty sweet. A missionary, also not a good one, but I was one. And I de derived a lot of significance from that. And, and I wanted to hold on to it, that feeling of significance. That, that, that dream that I had was accomplished by that age, but it just always seemed to be not enough and demanding just a little bit more just a little bit more, and then I can be significant. And as I chased it and chased it, it was draining my time with my family, with those I love the most, any sense of attention that I had. Then my wife and my daughter were diagnosed with some health issues. And all the professionals, all the healthcare people said, look, Jim, you are traveling multiple weeks every month. You are not around. You are not engaged. Your family needs stability right now. People in this church challenge me. Your family needs stability right now. And I remember sitting in my backyard, resenting God, thinking things about my family that I am ashamed of wondering if the idol of significance is worthy of following at the cost of my family. And at the pace I was going, it would have torn my family apart. And fortunately, my wife and my daughter, who in my eyes are like heroes in the kingdom of God, began showing this pastor, this missionary, what Jesus is really like 
than what's really significant. The important people are not the people out there, but they're the important, my wife and my daughter right here. The important place wasn't somewhere out there, but it's the holy ground underneath my feet. And that I didn't need to find my significance from the praise of others because there was one who spoke love and significance over me and called me his own child. At the pace I was going, it would have wrecked my family. And the gift of God was to strip those things away and show me the kingdom of God in front of my face. I want to show you one last thing. There's a picture here. This is one of my favorite moments. My daughter and I, we have this game, this thing that we do. Whenever she does something brave, she can smash dessert in my face. So that's me <laughs> being a victim of a brownie right there. That's one of my favorite memories. It's my favorite memory because um, that day, it was right around her birthday, she was turning 10, and that was right about the age that most people, most parents in my families have been long gone. They've all been gone by the age of 10 with their kids. That was also right around the time of our 15th anniversary, and 15th anniversary marks the, that our marriage has lasted more than the sum total of all my parents' marriages. That's a day that just marks the sweetness of being able to be with that girl and, and Jenny. And why this stands out is I've recent, I recently did a, an experiment where I went through my phone and looked at all the photos that would have been taken away had I given my life to this idol of significance. And that one wouldn't be there. And each of you has photos in your phone, in your history, that if you give yourself to the idol of significance, it will snatch it right out of your life. And so if I'm fired up about this idol of significance being unworthy, it is with reason. It is unworthy of your life. It takes and takes away from you. But as we come to the table and we take communion, let it be a reminder of something better, a reminder of something different. That the idols demand that you sacrifice your life, that you sacrifice those moments for them. But when we take communion and hold the bread and the wine, it shows us a God who gives us himself, who sacrificed for you instead of demanding the sacrifice from you. It's the God who says, I'm not taking away your life, but I am giving you life and I am giving myself to you. It is a different way. It is a better way. It is a significant way. And as we take communion and let those elements sit on our tongue and our taste buds, let them remind us that the significant king over everything humbled himself as an insignificant servant to rescue us and to deliver us of a life of being significant and loved as children of God. 
come forward and take the bread and the wine and let this be a moment where you say unequivocally that the verdict is in, that God is worthy of your worship and not the idols. Let's pray. God, for my friends, my brothers and sisters in this room, I think we all collectively say that you are better, that you are more worthy of our time, of our life, of our attention. And we thank you that you have given yourself to us. For those who are wrestling right now and who feel like the idol of significance may be the way, God, I pray that you would paint them the better picture of what you are offering. And God, I pray that you would remind me over and over again of this truth as well. God, we pray that as we come forward and take communion and we sing, that we would celebrate and feast over the one who, through the past, present, and future, proves that you offer something better and you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.